Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. It is my pleasure to introduce Philip Gepter, who will present his book, What Becomes a Legend Most? A Biography of Richard Avedon. The book offers a detailed portrait of legendary photographer Richard Avedon and his era. Gepter will speak in conversation with MFIT curator, Melissa Mara Alvarez, about Avedon's early year and his transformative work for Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, among others. Enjoy the show. Hello, Philip. Hi, Melissa. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm delighted. And congratulations on your new book, What Becomes the Legend Most, a biography of Richard Avedon. Thank you. I just want to start off by saying that I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. It's not only because it's a really in-depth look into, into the life and the career of Richard Avedon, one of the world's most famous photographers, um, but also you, you interweave in telling the story of his career, you really interweave a sort of history or narrative of uh, post-war American culture, which I found really fascinating. So again, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that's um, that was that was intentional, <laughs> <laughs> and as well a bit of a um, kind of the evolution of, of kind of the history of photography too. Yeah. It, it was um, it was great. So again, congratulations. And so I thought we could start today um, by asking. What was your motivation for writing a book about a biography of Avedon? Um, and when did you realize that you wanted to tell his story? So um, I, um, I went to Pratt Institute in the 1970s study and studied art, um, painting and photography. And I um, was surprised when I got to Pratt that the art world was not really receptive to photography. In fact, it, it, it was a kind of prejudice um, against it. It was considered kind of a second class medium and, you know, not much more than a graphic art. And I was, you know, I, I thought at that time at the age of, you know, 18 or 19, that it was the medium of the future. So I somehow kind of, it, it sort of created this um, quiet indignation in me that, that never really went away. And um, uh, so I, um, I watched the slow evolution in stature of photography in the art world throughout the 1970s, but it was really only the beginning. In 1975, I went to Avedon's first gallery show, commercial gallery show at the Marlboro Gallery, and, I, and it, this is 1975. And I was just, you know, awestruck by the pictures. Uh, they, I'd never seen, they were portraits. Um, I'd never seen portraits that size on the wall with such kind of bold graphic punch. And I thought, this is radical. This is brand new. I was 23 years old, I think, at the time. But I, 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 I thought it was really, it had changed photography. And I was thrilled with that. And so, but, but the reviews were um, less than lukewarm. In fact, the reviews of his work by critics, they, they sort of dismissed it as being high style. And they didn't acknowledge it as you know as this being real like serious art you know so i like 
I noted Avedon then. So throughout my career, you know, I sort of learned a thing or two about the history of photography and about the history of art. And I I worked as a picture editor as well as a a photography critic. Um, In 2004, I was the page one picture editor of the New York Times. And and I learned one morning that Richard Avedon died. I went to the editors and said, obviously this is a page one obituary. And they kind of looked at me and looked at each other and said, well, not necessarily. This is in 2004, after Avedon had had um, major exhibitions in like the most important museums in America. Still, he was considered, even in 2004, by some, like the general public, as being a fashion photographer and a celebrity photographer. And I knew at that moment that I, w- I wanted to write the biography of Richard Avedon because for me, he was, his career, not only his body of, of work, his body's work, but his career kind of served as a, a kind of avatar for the evolution of photography itself into the art world. I did, by the way, um, I made the case all day long at the Times and Avedon's obituary did run on the front page of the New York Times. And how long did it take you to research the book? The book? Um, it took about five years to write it. Once I got the book contract um, in 2015 or so, um, it took a good, well, let's say four years. But I had already, you know, even over the course of my career, I had noted Avedon. I sort of, I understood, I already knew some highlights of his career just by nature of, you know, seeing the shows and reading about him. But I would say a good solid four years of research. I did some research at FIT. In fact, FIT has um, bound volumes of Harper's Bazaar. And I spent several days in the library there just going through the early issues, um, which is a great pleasure. Yes, our special library is a a wonderful research uh, resource. Great, and so when you were researching, was there a sort of aha moment, a moment where everything sort of came together and you felt that you understood this man and and you had bitter insight into who Abaddon was and what informed his work? Yes, there was was one essential aha moment um, that occurred maybe almost a year into my research. Um, It was when I realized that, that I'm going to call Avedon Dick, if you don't mind. Everybody called Richard Avedon Dick. That was, you know, Dick was shortened Richard. And, and so um, so it's, it's when I realized that Dick um, really wanted to be a poet. And um, he, in high school, um, and I was in doing research and, and discovering, I discovered this in several different ways. I won't sort of go into how I finally got there, but I did get there. And um, I... I I started to explore um, kind of his poetry. So in high school, he was um, co-editor of his high school literary magazine with no less than James Baldwin. James Baldwin and Richard Avedon went to high school together. They worked for them. They worked on, on the staff of the Magpie, which was the literary magazine. Um, so Avedon published like, I don't know, more than a dozen poems in the Magpie. And there, there is a copy of the Magpie at the New York Public Library I mean, in, in the special collections. Um, um, and so I was able to, to, to read his poetry. And I, 
The, I also learned that, um, so Dick, and we'll get to his cousin Margie in a bit, but, but he was very close to his first cousin. They, they were like siblings and they both wrote poetry together. She would eventually write a novel um, about their early life together, like, you know, when their childhood. And in the novel, it, you know, I learned that, um, that they sort of worshiped at the knee of um, Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker was a writer in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, um, and, and that, so they, anyway, I learned about their, their poetry writing. Uh, it, when Dick was 17, he won a New York City-wide high school poetry award um, that landed him his first write-up in the New York Times at the age of 17. Um, he, went, he, he grew up in New York and he went to DeWitt Clinton High School. I, I, from that, I, I realized that um, there, there was a poetic, there is a poetic impulse that I recognized without knowing it all my life when I looked at his work that, that it, all of a sudden it made sense to me why his pictures were so good. He eventually, I think in, you know, he'd never graduated from high school. He went into the Merchant Marine and he also had been taking pictures. And um, I think he decided in 1944 when he was 21 that like to be a photographer was more, you know, he would have like a more, you know, comfortable life and a respectable life and he could have a career and all that. I think. So he, he pursued his photography, but he brought with him that poetic impulse. Okay. Um, and I think that is just such a wonderful point to this. There is definitely a, a lyrical quality um, to yes. his images, both his fashion images and his portraiture, yes. um, which really definitely comes through now that you say that. Yes. Um, so you talked a little bit about you know, his sort of high school years, being in, interested in poetry. Um, he also crossed paths with a lot of sort of very kind of people who would become luminary figures in, yes. in 20th century culture, sort of foreshadowing yes. this later success of his. Um, can you give us just maybe set up a small snapshot of young Richard Avedon's life, his influences, his formative years? I know the book you talk about how he felt like an outsider. Um, yes. Can you just so he, yeah, sure. He, so he was, you know, he was like a scrawny, gawky, short, little kid with glasses. Um, he, I think he eventually grew into, in fact, willed his good looks. <laughs> um, he became, because, you know, people think of Dick and in fact, in his kind of like later career became a man about town. He was very good looking. Everybody talked about, oh, he's so good looking and so charming. I think he really kind of aimed for that. But early on, I mean, he was, you know, he was ridiculed in high school. He was, um, you know, he suffered kind of the prejudices of, of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in New York growing up between the world wars. And I, and I also think um, kind of homophobia, even though he was not officially like, homosexual and I, but I think he had he had feelings that he was very uncomfortable with and he was it was not exactly kind of an athletic masculine guy so he he suffered you know um, the kind of ridicule that I think you know a lot of people actually suffer as as teenagers so but he was he was single-minded he was he was very ambitious and single-minded about working at Harper's Bazaar when he was 21. He, um, and he, had, he, he read Harper's Bazaar because his parents got it. And it was one of the most influential 
cultural publications in America then, you know, they published serious literature from, you know, um, you know, William Faulkner to Virginia Woolf to Christopher Isherwood. They, they show, they, they published the best photographers of their day. So, so he had one ambition when he got out of the Merchant Marines and that was to work for Harper's Bazaar. He made 14 appointments with Alexei Brodovich before Brodovich actually deigned to see him. But once he got in, and he did get in, I mean, they, they recognized that he was talented. An entire world opened up to him that, and, and I, I wanna, this is an important point, I think. He didn't wanna work at Harper's Bazaar necessarily because he wanted to be a fashion photographer. He wanted to work there because he thought it was the center of culture and he would be at the very center of the cultural life of, of New York and, and of his time. And that was true because he ended up photographing, you know, people who would become leaders in, in, in you know, cultural um, um, figures like, like Leonard Bernstein. Truman Capote started working at Harper's Bazaar, started writing for them like a year after Dick started. So they, I call them, they were in the kind of freshman class together at, at Harper's <laughs> Bazaar. And so he, his early, I mean, from the time he was 21, he was, he was just plopped into the center of New York culture in the late 40s after World War II, which was just a, a kind of a, an incubator for what became and shaped the cultural life, I think, of the second half of the 20th century. Yes, well, one of the things also that struck me when I was reading the book was, that, you know, you paint this picture of a young Avedon who, as a child, was just digesting culture, whether it was pouring through his mother's issues of Harper's Bazaar yes. and cutting out images and putting them up on the wall, um, or his obsession or his fascination with the theater and collecting playbills. He was just digesting culture around him and then later goes on through his photography to kind of spit that culture back out at, and, and show it back to us. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and one of the places where he does that so beautifully and so in, um, instrumentally is in his fashion photography. And tell our viewers um, what, what makes an Avedon fashion photograph uh, or what makes a fashion photograph, an Avedon fashion photograph. Well, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> yes. I always say that, that, that well, before I, I will tell you what I always say about him, <laughs> you know, he had a mandate from um, Carmel Snow, who was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, and, and we can talk about her. I, I know you had a question about her. She was just very briefly, she was one of his mentors. He had three mentors at Harper's Bazaar, um, Carmel Snow, Alexei Brodovich, and Deanna Vreeland. Carmel Snow was the, like, you could not have met or found a more sophisticated woman on the planet. She, she in her 20s, you know, she was working for Vogue magazine. She trained Edward Steichen to be a fashion photographer. She went to the collections in Paris and became very good friends with Coco Chanel and Jean Cocteau. And she was part of the Cafe Society in her 20s, as well as in New York, knowing everybody in like from her 20s, the Algonquin round table set and kind of the writers of her time. So when Dick met her, she was in her 40s and um, or even later 50s maybe. She had a mandate after World War II to resuscitate the fashion industry in Paris after, after the war. And so she said to Dick, I want you to take the model and, and, and show Paris 
So Dick is known to revolutionize fashion photography by taking the model out of the studio and into the street. That's not necessarily how he revolu revolutionized fashion. He, he did do that, but he was not the very first to do that. Other people had started to do that. But the fact is that the street he was taking the model out into was in Paris, number one. And so, so he was responding to Paris as well as wanting to photograph Paris um, and photograph the model. I always say that Dick is the impresario of the fleeting visual metaphor. And what he did was he didn't just pose the model wearing Balenciaga, he created an entire scene. And what I think he was able to do, and this is where I try to define the poet making images, is that he was photographing a condition of spontaneity. And if you look at all of his pictures, you will see that it's almost as if the breeze is blowing through the frame. It's, mm -hmm. it's as if he has simply caught this person. There's a term, a literary term, in medias res, like he's caught the model in medias res, as if she's, he just happened upon her on the street doing what she's doing. Even though, of course, it took hours to construct the picture. The, the, the model had to be dressed, you know, coiffed, um, makeup. He had to create, you know, a, a space on, on the street. So they had to block off the street. They had to get, had the right light, the time of day for the light, et cetera, et cetera. You can see that he's creating imagery the way a poet creates images with words and rhythm and all of that. He's doing it visually and he's creating an entire metaphor. Here is this woman, for, for example, I mean, she's checking herself before she goes out for the evening. Um, and it's something that like many women will rec recognize in one second, you know, it's just making sure that everything is just right before she has to go out into the public. And I mean, it's a wonderful image. It's, it's, it's a beautiful image. It's also true to the experience of a woman. I mean, maybe not everyone is that wealthy <laughs> by any means, but it gives, you know, at that time, you know, fashion was setting a standard too. And that, that was important then. And, you know, I, this sense of intimacy that he also brought to his, his fashion photography. Yes. The other thing I can talk about is his, um, Dick loved dance. I mean, he loved ballet and he, he was very interested in the dance and he brought that to his, um, his models. I mean, he was, he, you know, there's gesture it's, there's, it's, it's almost choreographed in a way, and yet it looks completely spontaneous. You know, Dick, people always said that, you know, Dick was photographing Paris. And it's true, he was. I mean, he was photographing in Paris. But he said, my Paris never existed. I fabricated it, not out of whole cloth exactly, but out of swatches of Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch, the filmmaker or Rene Clair or Rogers and Astaire movies or Cole Porter songs. And out of the stories that my mentor, Alexei Brodovich, um, as well as Carmel Snow told me of the Paris he knew before the war, it was my own elation that I was photographing. And there it is. I mean, you see that. And that again is the poet in him. I mean, et voila. <laughs> yeah, the poet and the storyteller, right? Yes. Um, he was definitely capturing the optimism of the post-war years. Absolutely. 
And, and that was, I think, a strength um, yes. that, that made his images so appealing. There's an effervescence about it that, I mean, and we, I, it's hard for us to understand today how after World War II, there was a kind of new, just a new feeling of like, you can, you know, you can breathe more freely and, you know, and the world is, is, is you know, one's oyster. It's like the world opened up to everyone for that period, that post-World War II period. And he captured that. So these images were, are instrumental in cultivating a notion of, of beauty and glamour in the post-war era. Absolutely. The Avedon woman was the kind of result of everything we just talked about, that kind of, you know, optimism, yes. a certain kind of gaiety and kookiness and independence and, you know, um, effervescence and all of that. Um, and so in 1961, Audrey Hepburn, um, played Holly Golightly in the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now, Dick didn't have anything to do with that movie per se, although he knew Truman Capote very well, who wrote the book on which the movie's based. And Audrey Hepburn had been in a movie four years earlier called Funny Face, which was based on Dick's life. And that, I mean, that's another subject altogether. <laughs> so I maintain that Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly in Who's Afraid, in, in I'm sorry, um, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, is the apotheosis of the Avedon woman. I mean, if you look at her, you can see everything we saw before throughout the 1950s in those pictures. There she is. She stepped out of the pages of an Avedon photograph. So Dick was, you know, he had a social conscience and he tried in his way, you know, within the pages of... Harper's Bazaar, a fashion magazine, to um, represent kind of a broader cultural swath. And so he, in, in, so in 1959, he photographed Sheena Mikado on the left, who was, who was an Asian American. No, she wasn't even American. She was, she was Asian, half Asian. Um, and he thought she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And he said that about any number of his models, but she, he, he, she was very, very beautiful. And he did a, a session of, of photographs with her. And um, when they presented them to use in the magazine, the publisher rejected her. This is in the late fifties because she was Asian. And he said, our, our, our readers don't want to see Asian women. They want to see themselves. And Dick said, you know, you know, them, they are much broader than simply, you know, white, rich white women. And he said, if you don't publish this portfolio, I am leaving Harper's Bazaar, I'll go to Vogue. And so he actually put his career on the line to just for the sake of representing, you know, a, a kind of woman who was outside of that very strict Caucasian white, you know, American type. So five years later, or whatever, in 1965. <laughs> on, the, on the right is Daniela Luna, who is an, an, was African-American. Um, and um, he photographed her and insisted that, that they use these pictures in an issue of Harper's Bazaar that we're about to get to that Dick was guest editor of um, in April, 1965. Um, and he did succeed in, in getting these pictures of her in the magazine. But the magazine, um, the publisher was livid because they lost um, advertising revenue. Advertisers pulled out of the magazine because 
the culture was so racist at the time um, that 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 advertisers objected to uh, a black woman being in the magazine. But Dick insisted. And so, you know, in his own small way, he made progress um, in terms of kind of introducing kind of a more multicultural swath, you know. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, I think that, you know, I always say that he, he did have a social conscience even from his own very high privileged um, perch. Well, the, the 1965 issue was a very forward-looking is, issue. It really was all, it was very groundbreaking. It was yes. all about the new. Um, and it comes about a year after he, poured, he uh, published his Nothing Personal, um, in which James yes. Baldwin um, wrote the text for the book. Yes. Um, which, as a graduate student, I came across this issue, and I was just so amazed um, at how forward-thinking it was yes. and just how revolutionary it was. Yes. So Dick was the guest editor of this issue. I mean, he had been photographing for Harper's Bazaar for years, and I just want to say that even as a photographer, he often brought ideas to the magazine, cultural ideas to the magazine. And there was a period in time when he had his own um, portfolio every month called Observations. Like he, he had a 1959 book of portraits called Observations. And then Harper's Bazaar gave him a portfolio every month that wasn't necessarily fashion, just kind of a cultural observation on a particular subject or cultural, you know, event or something. So in 19, April 1965, he was the guest editor. He, he conceived the editorial content for the entire issue and photographed the entire issue as well. He had photographed um, Jean Shrimpton, the model, and she's, she has a bubble, um, um, spacesuit bubble on her head. Um, and he hated the, Im I mean, he took the image and inside she is photographed wearing a NASA kind of moon suit, which is part of the forward thinking aspect of, of the issue itself. But he hated it for the cover and decided at the last minute, seeing it mocked up that he didn't like it. He said, I don't know what we're gonna do about this. And Ruth Ensel, who's the art director, she just cut out the shape and placed it on her head. And Dick said, that's brilliant, let's use it. And look at it. I mean, it's, it is an amazing image and it sort of shows you there's a certain kind of spontaneous kind of aspect to this, um, this image that it just has renewed life. And it, it basically, I mean, I can talk about it graphically in terms of how it both flattens out the image, the paper itself, but also it's enigmatic, you know, she's real, but the paper's flat and it creates a frame around a frame, et cetera, et cetera. The issue itself was a kind of um, a perfect time capsule with its finger on the zeitgeist at the nascent moment of sex, drugs, rock and roll and countercultural revolt, I like to say. <laughs> um, and um, the fashion at that moment was brand new. Like, it had never been seen before. The shapes, the size, the miniskirt was coming into to vogue. Um, the patterns, it was all just, it's like, it's, it's sort of a result of um, pop art, which was, you know, sort of emerged in the early 60s. And so those, those patterns just ended up on, on, you know, fabric and, you know, in designers collections and and so there it is and it's it was um a moment when you know just 
at the at at the at the brink of kind of psychedelic culture and 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 um, psychedelics and, and drugs and all of that, and you can see it nascent right here in, in these images. Yes, well, and, and the issue was in infusing op art and pop art exactly, uh, and not only what it was, what he was photographing, but the way he was photographing it. It's just everything was like inside out, upside down eye-popping, no matter where you turned. And at that moment in time, that was the truth. It was just, you know, the, the culture had gone completely visual in a way. It was just as Andy Warhol was rising. It, you know, so I, I mean, there are a lot of kind of cultural elements that you can see identified in what he was doing. And it's also um, christening this moment of youth culture um, that was Absolutely. really coming to fruition, right? The Absolutely. Future, I mean, so here he, the theme of going to the moon, yes. which, which, which we had not done yet. Mankind had not done yet. It was four years after this. But that idea, you know, it sort of, it just opened up his own, Avedon's own imagination. And his finger was right on what was happening in the culture, what was about to happen. I like to say that, so on the right is Paul McCartney, one of the Fab Four, the Beatles. At that moment in time, they were gods. They were, the Beatles were like, <laughs> like they were the deities of the planet, all across the planet. And I like to say that if, if there were anyone who should have gone to the moon, like, if, 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 you know, who should have taken one small step for man, one large step for mankind, it would have been Paul McCartney. Like the world <laughs> would have loved that. Uh, and, you know, aside from this forward thinking fashion and including of the moment art, aesthetics, it also was sort of a portraiture of the culture at the time. I mean, he included photographs of Bob Dylan, of yes. Jasper Johns, Jasper Johns right. included a text with Tom Walsh. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so he, I mean, he did a series of portraits for the issue. These are unlike any portraits he had ever done. I mean, he rarely took um, his portrait subjects out into the street. They were almost, you know, um, uniformly in the studio. But he was trying something new because the moment was completely new. And, um, and you see there's sort of a little bit more kind of action in, in the portraits that he, like he rarely, rarely did that. And he, not only that, but he, these people, I mean, Bob Dylan was another. He was also, you know, like a, like a, like a rock and roll hero, like a, a folk, folk hero at that moment in time. You know, but and he was young. I mean, this was early in in, in Bob Dylan's career, like 1960, well, early 65. He was sort of at the top of the moment, in fact. Mm -hmm. And Jasper Johns on the left, most people did not know who he was. I mean, he, he would become one of the most significant artists of, of, of his generation. But at the time, he was simply a young artist. But Dick sort of anticipated, you know, where the culture was going and everyone in the, I mean, I, th I think he did three or four other portraits in this issue. Every one of them became like a major figure in culture at the time. And this was the last um, issue, is that right? The last issue that Avedon worked for before moving over to Vogue. Yes, so he, he went to Vogue after this. Um, this was his, his swan song. His swan song, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I, I want to I want to talk to you about is 
throughout the book, you set up this, there's this tension that's constantly going on with, with Avedon between his fashion work and his commercial work yes. um, and, the, and the art photography. That and he, his portraiture. The right. portraiture. Right. Um, and there was this struggle, right? He exceeded beyond, you know, beyond measure when it came to being known as a fashion photographer. But he really struggled being taken seriously um, as an art photographer. Yes, that's correct. So, and, and talk about that because one of the other things you set up was it was the commercial work from what I understand that gave him the sort of financial freedom to pursue his passion, which was the portraiture. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. so they really did. And, and in some ways they kind of fed off of one another. Um, yes. So, so I, I want to just say one thing before um, we, we talk about them. There, there are three examples here um, of his commercial work, but you know, in when, when Dick, like throughout his career, um, and it's not just about him, there was a, a church and state divide between editorial and advertising, number one. So Dick was a fashion photographer, an editorial photographer. I mean, he, he filled the editorial content of magazines. I mean, that was part of what he did. And that is grounded in fact-based reality, let's say. So, so you know, what, what existed in the content, um, in terms of the content of editorial content then was, was coming from the real world. I mean, it wasn't completely, you know, it wasn't completely made up, even though fashion photography straddled a bit, like that idea of what was true with what was imagined. Okay, but still, there was a church-state divide. And, and and he was able to navigate that by, by doing his editorial fashion work and then doing his advertising. At the same time, and, and this, I want to make this point now when we get to his artwork, his, his portraits, is that there was also a church-state divide between art and commerce. Mm -hmm. So he had to hurdle both, both church and state divides, both in terms of uh, <laughs> editorial and advertising and in terms of his commercial work and his artwork. So... This was a, a series he, uh, of ads he did. Um, it's an ad campaign for Dior. Um, he did in 19, the early 80s. It's called The Dior's. And it's very playful. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was incredibly successful. And these were ads that were like on the sides of buses and in every magazine. And he was sort of reconstructing an idea, the idea of kind of the menage a trois of you know a certain '30s, um, you know, grand living, Cole Porter, Noel Coward esque um, small group of friends. This menage a trois. Um, in each each one, you know, there's a kind of different scenario. And what does it say? When they were good, they were very very good. But when they were bad, they were gorgeous. And each one, which was written by Dune Arbus, who worked with with Dick. Um, was just mischievous enough and just, you know, paradoxical enough to be quite engaging. Anyway, I mean, we could go on about that, but he created this entire campaign. He set up the scenes. Um, they came out of his own imagination and, and do an artist together. So he was not only the art director, I mean, he was not only the photographer, but he was also acting at the, as the art director for a lot of Exactly. People. So, so he would be handed like a, 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 an account. He would say, okay, like whoever handled Dior, um, Christian Dior said, okay, Dick, I want you to do this campaign. 
and he would create it. They wouldn't say to him, they wouldn't go to him and say, we're going to do this and we want you to shoot this. They would just give it to him. Mm-hmm. So he was the art director, the ad exec, like in a way, and, and the photographer as well. Which is unusual, right? It's, uh, yes, uh, uh, like unprecedented. <laughs> um, and now I want to move to his portraiture. Yes. Um, which in the book you attribute to really being his greatest contribution to photography, right? Absolutely, yes, I do. Yes, his legacy. And so what I would like to ask is just for you to talk a little bit about his portrait style, what he was doing. His earlier portraits, they they are before he arrives at a certain signature style that became kind of known as the Avedon portrait. But until then, I mean, he was known as a celebrity photographer I mean, the pictures he was making were for publication, for Harper's Bazaar mostly. Um, so he photographed Marilyn Monroe. He knew her a little bit. Um, I mean, they weren't friends necessarily, but, but he had photographed her once or twice before. Um, and she spent um, an evening in his studio dressed that way. She had just worn that gown to the April in Paris ball at the Waldorf Astoria two weeks earlier. She spent the evening being photographed by him and so he said, he described this picture. He said, you know, Marilyn spent the evening being Marilyn Monroe. And, and, you know, but after all the champagne and after all of her performance, he saw her sitting there and she had been like kind of deflated. And he walked up to her and he wanted to photograph her. And she didn't say no. He said that she didn't say no. And so he took this picture. And this picture is, you know, it's as if here is this grand, she was the most famous person in the world. Nobody had had the fame she had, I mean, in like from, you know, from Hollywood, let's say, I mean, aside from major world figures, she was the most famous woman in the world. And he photographed her deflated, sort of unmasked. And I like to say that this picture, I mean, looks as if she was, it was coming to her at that moment in time like she was recognizing all that had happened to her to bring her to this very point of being the most famous person in the world. And it's as if she's stunned. <laughs> That's how I like to talk about this image. But the fact is, is that he, this was the picture he chose out of that entire take, not, not the, you know, not the, the picture one would expect. It's not the expected picture of this grand, you know, super, siren, (laughs) Um, sex goddess, basically, as she was called then. But this very haunting, true, um, honest, vulnerable picture of, you know, this woman dressed for her public. It's it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful picture. I also say, just to go back to that idea of what becomes a legend most, in terms of Richard Avedon, when you look at this picture, it's a picture of Marilyn Monroe, but it has come to be Avedon's Marilyn. And, and that's the paradox of what becomes a legend most. Is it a Richard Avedon or is it Marilyn Monroe? And I think it's both. Actually, it straddles that paradox. But you can't have one in terms of the composition of, of this image in the world without the other. You can't just say, oh, that's Marilyn Monroe. In the same way, you can't say about a Warhol Marilyn that, oh, that's Marilyn Monroe. It's like, it's a Warhol Marilyn. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is a, an Avedon Marilyn. Well, and one of the things about his portraiture um, is that he 
it comes up in the book again is that he's really doing a catalog of humanity, right? After spending so much yes. of his career um, photographing the glamour and the beauty, um, his yes. portraiture is kind of the antithesis of that, where he's not necessarily looking to have someone shine, but to show um, the, hu the, the humanity in all of us, right? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, yes, hold that thought too. I think we have one or two more of these, or is, is it? We, oh, we can go to the uh, next. Oh. Yeah, so, so this is James Baldwin, and he photographed him. Um, I mean, James Baldwin, by this point, this was 1963, had already, you know, established his career as a writer, and he was now kind of becoming a voice of the civil rights movement at that moment in time. And, and so Dick and, and, um, and, and Jimmy, as he called him, um, would um, James Baldwin write an essay for a book that, that, that Avenant did in 1964, which was called Nothing Personal, which was basically uh, um, a, a book of photographs Avenant had done to kind of try to identify, you know, the, the, the rupture in society and the kind of racial divide. And, um, and he did that by what I call portraitizing a set of ideas about the culture. And so he, would he went to the South and photographed segregationists and he photographed civil rights workers and, um, you know, and, and other people in between. And so that book, Nothing Personal, was basically his statement about the kind of rupture in society at that moment in time. So he photographed James Baldwin here be before he went to the South, but it was, it was when he was photographing him for this that he started to kind of, that idea was germinating in, in Avedon's mind. This is an unusual picture for Dick. I mean, he knew... James Baldwin going back to high school. And, you know, it's a very intimate portrait, um, but it's not, this is not yet the style he would, and not style or the signature that would define an Avedon photograph. Um, he was of a generation that was on alert to the profound threat of the atomic bomb. And we can understand this today, but at the time, you know, the atomic bomb went off in 1945 and it was, this menacing, you know, kind of like black cloud on culture for 20 years or so. Um, so he, um, you know, he lived with that. And I think what he ended up doing in the late 60s, he established um, this portrait style, which became his signature um, with serious artistic intention. And I think what he, the reason I think it's so important is that he was photographing his subjects like specimens under the forensic scrutiny of his lens for the strain of existential dread that runs through our species at the thought of our annihilation. That's a mouthful, but I think <laughs> it's true. And, um, you know, so when you think about it, no one is smiling against the white nuclear backdrop in his portraits. And we can go through them and you'll see. And that's one point I wanna make about them. And the other I wanna make is that by stripping the frame to nothing but the subject outside of you know, any environmental cues about who they are, he equalizes everybody. Everybody, as I say, becomes specimens on one level, but also they are simply representative human beings of the species, regardless of their accomplishment um, or their you know, class or their you know, income level. He did a, a body of work called In the American West, and he spent five years off and on going out into the West and photographing P 
people he would just happen upon. Like, so he, he saw this man, I mean, he was with his assistants and, and another a woman who he had hired to kind of help him like find places, rodeos and things like that um, to go to. But they were driving along a, a, a highway in Oklahoma and this guy was walking along the side of the street carrying a, a, a knapsack and, a, and a, a, a rolled up bed on his head. And um, um, they stopped and he photographed him, Bill Curry, a drifter in Oklahoma. So he did this for like over the course of five years and he photographed, you know, anonymous people in the American West. And when you look at these pictures and think of this in context, you start to see the relationship, you know, between you can't tell is he just kind of a drifter in Nevada? I mean, or one of the great artists of, of his time. He, he distilled the frame to nothing but the subject. And he's photographing them. You know, people called him a celebrity photographer well into the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, when he would say, you know, don't think about who they are, just look at their faces. And what he wanted you to do was, was recognize that you know, you can see, you can look at these people in a way that you would never be able to study them and their faces if you were actually talking to them. So here's, here's, you know, a moment for you to actually like study someone's face and see the similarities and the differences and, you know, how, what, what life has done to them, like on their faces um, or not. And it's, it's a, a remarkable observation of, of who we are as, as, as people. And the reason I think that he's so significant is that I think he advanced portraiture in, in that genre throughout the history of photography after August Sander, who's another photographer who did not a dissimilar thing in the early half of the 20th century where he made a forensic study of, his, of his, the society of his time. One of the things that you say, or that Avedon says, um, in the book is that his portraits are just as much a portrait of himself than they are of the people, the subjects that he's photographing. Yes. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, I think he means, you know, he said all my portraits are self-portraits. And I think exactly what I said, that he, he was looking for that strain of existential dread that runs through our species at the thought of our annihilation. <laughs> and that, that's something he felt. He, you know, it's, he was a very complicated man. And, you know, on the one hand, he had this amazing outsized life and, and he enjoyed it. I mean, it wasn't that he was, you know, unhappy with his life. I mean, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> he knew everybody. He flew first class everywhere. He ate very well, you know, he, and he had serious relationships, friends, you know, who were lifetime friends, Leonard Bernstein, you know, mm -hmm. Truman Capote, Sidney Lumet, um, Mike Nichols, close, close lifelong friends. So, so he had a, a real nourishing life in some ways. And yet he was also at the same time lonely. He felt, you know, because of the shame he experienced as, as a child or in childhood and, and you know, as, as the anti-Semitism and the homophobia, and he could never really acknowledge his sexuality. I mean, only much, much, much later in his life did he finally sort of acknowledge it, but he lived in, you know, torture, tormented by feelings of shame. So, and on top of all of that, the dread of the nuclear bomb, which, you know, again, his generation, I, I can't overstate 
that that was a real thing. That was not something that was made up. That, you know, in 1962, the Bay of Pigs, the, the threat of nuclear war was this close. So he was photographing himself and photographing everybody. That's what he meant. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is a perfect place to sort of stop here. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today. And I'm delighted. And for those of you who have not read the book, I definitely recommend reading it. It's it's a it's a really dense and vivid portrait of of Abaddon's life. And so, congratulations again. Thank you very much. Thank you.